Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Nisa Lynn Hathaway, how are you? Oh, full government name. Hi, I'm good. We Should have... I do all of your names also? Oh, geez. I really only officially have the two now. I don't, the middle name was never real. The, <laughs> Lisa the... Marie Alicia Rodriguez Duran. The... Lisa Marie Alicia Rodriguez Duran Fountain. Yep, that's it. That's the whole thing. But we just go by Lisa Fountain. I'm just a two-name kind of girl. I'd go by Straight Up Lisa if I could, but there are more of those in the world than just me. Like Madonna and Cher. Yeah, exactly. Lisa, just Lisa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we are doing a follow-up episode today. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a kind of pseudo part two to our episode on uh, super glottic airway management. Yeah, it's... um. Uh, you could say it's a companion piece, sort of a expanding hmm. on some of the principles that we got started on in that piece. Okay, so this is another um, episode in our series of uh, Georgia RTAC-sponsored episodes. Um, so this is another piece on trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, the title, I'm going to say it just because I like how it rolls off the tongue, is Resuscitate Before You Intubate. Mm-hmm. If either you yes. or I were more talented, we could figure out how to wrap that, but we will not expose our listeners to that horror. So, okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and res- resuscitate before you intubate is not a term that I came up with. It's it's in the literature and it's uh, it's out there. Uh, it's also something, a principle that doesn't, only specifically apply to trauma patients, but it crosses over to medical patients as well. So these principles will apply to your medical patients too. Excellent. Give me the skinny. So we talked about in the superglottic uh, episode that when we do an assessment on our patient, we start with our ABCs. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what they are? The A is airway. Right. I don't remember the B or the C. B is Oh, B is blood and C is circulation. Breathing and circulation, yes. Okay, well, two, breathing two three. oxygenates the blood, so there's a right. link. And they both start with yes. B, so okay. So uh, airway, breathing, and circulation. Right. And again, just like with our superglottic episode, this is an advanced trauma principle that we're talking about. Um, so it may be a little different than, than what you have learned before. For the advanced trauma principle, what we're talking about is... Um, Normally, when you're introduced to the ABCs and you're, talked, you're taught about airway first, you're taught that you get that definitive airway, that you handle the airway, and you don't move on to anything else until that airway is handled. It's not exactly the case. You do need to manage the airway, to be sure. Um, certainly, the airway needs to be open. Uh, without a patent airway, your patient is, is not going to survive. But... Breathing and circulation need to be optimized before you move to a definitive airway. And we, we, we talked about what a definitive airway is in the superglottic airway episode. A definitive airway is defined as 
an endotracheal tube properly placed in the trachea. Okay. Um, and that is from uh, the, the American College of Surgeons. That's their definition of what a definitive airway is. So we're talking about intubation. Okay. So before we intubate a patient, we really need to make sure that we have optimized their breathing and circulation. So patent airway for sure, mm -hmm. but before we intubate, we've got to optimize breathing and circulation or we're going to send our patient down a very bad path. All three of those components are equally important. Right. Okay. So in the literature, it says uncorrected hypoxemia, hypocapnia, and hypotension can have devastating consequences in the peri-intubation period, so right before intubation. All trauma patients should have both anatomic and physiologic factors considered, planned for, and ideally corrected mm. as part of their airway plan. So that's before intubation. They should be identified, considered, planned for, and hopefully corrected before intubation. Got it. So talking about those principles, the hypoxemia, the hypotension, uh, we're going to go to information that um, I have researched and been taught by two of the demigods of emergency medicine, and I'm talking about Scott Weingart and Salim Rezai. So Scott Weingart is from the MCRIT podcast, and Salim Rezai is from RebelCast or Rebel EM. Those are uh, the blog and the podcast. Um, so they talk about first hypotension and how to address hypotension, the interventions um, and what were what the definition of hypotension. So in the peri-intubation period, we're talking about a systolic of less than 90. If you attempt intubation on a patient with a systolic of less than 90, um, you are very likely going to tip them over into potentially even cardiac arrest. The biggest predictor of cardiac arrest in RSI is um, hypotension, okay. and that's in all patients, not just trauma. Okay. So what do we do to avoid that? Well, first, we're going to start with two large bore IVs. Mm -hmm. If you're not able to establish that because your patient is too clamped down or the vessels just aren't there, you're going to go interosseous. You're going to place IO. Um, so we want a systolic greater than 90, if possible, ideally greater than 140. So as close to that as you can get. Um, and you're going to get that by using warm fluids and move to blood. Um, once you have given them a liter to a liter and a half of warm fluids, if blood is appropriate. Okay. Also consider push dose pressors. At my shop, we use vasopressin for trauma, but other places and other um, experts recommend epi. What, whatever you need to keep that blood pressure up in the peri-intubation period. Okay. Uh, the next thing that we want to optimize is hypoxemia. So we're going to do that with pre-oxygenation. We love pre-oxygenation on the QWord podcast. <laughs> we do. We've <laughs> We've mentioned it a lot. We've got an episode on it. Mm -hmm. We're going to put a nasal cannula on our patient at 15 liters per minute. Um, Dr. Rezai and Dr. Weinkart even talk about just turning the oxygen indicator all the way up to the top. It's called turning it flush. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're actually higher than 15 liters a minute. Just turn it flush. That's fine. Mm -hmm. You can add a non-rebreather on top of that nasal cannula to a second oxygen source. Turn it to 15 liters or flush if your patient needs it. Whatever you need to do to get that oxygen level up 
and we're talking about a goal of greater than 95% pulse oximetry before we intubate. Got it. Um, so we're, we're trying to optimize their oxygenation level. If you can't get it greater than 95%, then you're going to move to a bag valve mask okay. with a peep valve and a tight seal. In order to get this tight seal, you may even need two providers. So that's going to be one provider just holding the mask onto the face, forming that good seal, and the other person uh, potentially bagging. Wow. During your intubation, you'll leave that nasal cannula in place with the 15 liters or even flush if needed. That's for your apneic oxygenation. We also... Love, love, love apneic oxygenation. Um, the third category that they talk about, and they're talking really more about the medical patient, not so much about the trauma patient, but they talk about acidosis. Um, acidosis is the third prong of the trauma triad of death. Ooh. The trauma triad of death is... Um, a great band. <laughs> it would be a great band name. It's uh, coagulopathy, hypothermia, and acidosis. And okay. whenever I say the trauma triad of death, I always feel like I should do like a dun-dun-dun. Yes. Um, so usually our patients, uh, acidosis of, develops on into their stay in the trauma bay. But some of the patients that you might think about would be patients like um, they've been down for a prolonged time before they were found. So maybe the car accident happened in the wee hours of the morning and they weren't found for some hours. Or maybe it's an elderly person that fell and broke a hip and they weren't found for some hours. Um, Sometimes, too, we have patients that, especially in our elderly population, where they were found down, they had a big laceration on their head, they're altered. So we wonder, was it the altered mental status that caused the fall, that caused the laceration? So are they a neuro? Are they a medical? Are they a trauma? Was it neuro that caused the trauma? Was it the trauma that caused the neuro? It's like a chicken and an egg situation. Those are the types of patients that we worry about with acidosis. So you may have a medical trauma combo patient, particularly in that elderly popula population or the delayed um, injury um, patient. So those patients, I would get an ABG for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, this would be one where if they've managed their airway for that long period of time and you're considering intubation, you can probably take a slower approach. Mm -hmm. So get an arterial blood gas and see, in fact, how acidotic they are. Okay. Also get a pre-intubation end tidal with um, a nasal cannula end tidal. That's something that you will want to match on the ventilator. Um, and avoid intubating those acidotic patients if at all possible. Okay. There are two special populations of trauma patients that I want to discuss, RSI um, and airway breathing circulation with and resuscitation before intubation. Okay. The first special population would be the traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. In these patients, we often intubate them for airway protection. It's not about oxygenation. It's not about ventilation. It's about their mental status. They are altered. Uh, they have a low GCS, and we're afraid that they're not going to be able to protect their airway. So this is more of an elective intubation. Um, and the literature says that given the relatively high incident of peri-intubation desaturation, hypocapnia and hypotension in emergency intubations, the benefit of 
uh, intubation for airway protection to prevent aspiration, which is the airway protection, needs to be weighed against the risk of these physiological adverse events. Mm. Um, We know in the traumatic brain injury patient that one episode of hypoxia one episode of hypotension increases their morbidity and mortality. So if we're intubating them just for airway protection, this is less time sensitive, should not be rushed, and we need to take every precaution to adequately resuscitate them and pre-oxygenate them first. Mm. Now, if they are so altered that they are apneic from their traumatic brain injury, or they are hypoventilating, just breathing six or seven, eight times a minute, there's no question they, that we need to take their airway. That's a different patient. It's not what I'm talking about. Um, the second category of patients that I want to talk about for airway breathing circulation resuscitate before you intubate is the uncooperative patient, the agitated, violent trauma patient. So frequently when we pick up a trauma patient, it is because they, uh, they are agitated or violent and we get a report Um, or we are suspicious that they are agitated or violent and maybe even have ended up as a trauma patient because they are drunk or under the influence of some kind of mind-altering substance. Substance, exactly right. So um, they have something on board that's making them belligerent, uncooperative. They're not following commands. They're making it very difficult for us to assess them. They're making it difficult for us to do the appropriate interventions. Um, If you're still using C-collars and spine boards, like unfortunately we are in our area, even though they are not proven out in the literature, we are still using them. Uh, This is something they will fight against. They'll try to pull the C-collar off. They'll try to pull the straps of the spine board off. So you're fighting them with that. Maybe they're pulling out IVs. If you've even gotten to establish one, they're pulling themselves off the monitor. So you haven't gotten a good set of vital signs yet. So it's a very challenging because they're drunk or high, or is it because they're hypoxic? Is it because they have a head injury? Is it because they are hypoperfused? So are they agitated and injured? Are they agitated because they're injured? Or are they just agitated? They're just plain old agitated, right? Don't know. So Mm -hmm. the Eastern Association... Go ahead. I was going to ask if that makes a difference in the way you assess them or treat them, but I think you're about to tell me. Yeah. So uh, there are many times that I have had the thought, man, I sure hate to take this patient's airway just because they're drunk. Mm -hmm. Like if we could just give them a few hours, then they might sober up. And, you know, the risks of of uh, of the ET tube, the risks of putting them down and putting them on the ventilator. And, you know, if they're just drunk, that sure would be, that's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but this is what the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma guidelines say about that patient population. Mm-hmm. They say that if you have tried initial pharmacological interventions, so maybe you've given a little bit of Ativan, maybe you've given some fentanyl because you suspect that they're hurting somewhere, mm-hmm. and the patient continues to be aggressive or uncooperative, that it does warrant discretionary intubation, that it is okay to proceed with intubation on this patient population uh, for your discretion for them being uncooperative, violent, agitated to take their airway Um, because there was a research and evidence that shows that out of 1,078 trauma patients intubated for agitation suspected due to intoxication, 
62% of them had significant head injuries. Ooh, that's a so lot. Well over half of them had significant head injuries. So the next time I encounter this patient, which I promise you won't be long before I see this patient again, I will feel much more comfortable um, if I have to, to intubate them because I now recognize that the statistics show that it is likely that it is because they are injured. Hmm. So, but we just said that we may not have a good set of vital signs. We haven't been able to do all of those resuscitative uh, efforts that we wanted to. We haven't been able to pre-oxygenate them. We might not have been able to get a good blood pressure on them. So what are we supposed to do? So the recommendation is that we will give them, uh, we will practice something that's called delayed sequence intubation. So what we're going to do to optimize their intubation. So we still want to give them the best intubation that we can, preventing hypoxia, preventing hypotension. Um, so we're going to give them a dissociative dose of ketamine. Ketamine okay. is the drug of choice. We also love that here on the Q-Word podcast. So one to two milligrams per kilo is the dissociative dose. And this is going to be what's called delayed sequence intubation. And the beauty of ketamine is that it is going to chill them out, but it has a very low profile for impacting their respiration. So they're still going to be independently breathing on their own almost all of the time. So okay. you you need to be prepared for that one very rare patient that does stop breathing. You need to be prepared to immediately take the airway. But it has a very low profile for impacting their spontaneous respirations. Okay. So it's a fairly safe drug to give them to chill them out, dissociate them, and let them just relax and then that way you can put them on your monitor, get a good full set of vital signs, see that their their blood pressure is a little borderline, give them some fluids, put the oxygen on them, optimize all of those things that you were wanting to do anyway while they were agitated and violent. And then if they need an additional dose of sedation, because it took a little bit of time for you to do that, you can do that and then go ahead with your um, neuromuscular blockade agent and intubation. Got it. Hmm. So that's the plan for the agitated patient. You may find some old school clinicians that will say that ketamine is contraindicated for the head injury patient. And that notion is based on a few very small studies uh, done a while ago with small sample sizes that found that um, ketamine increased intracranial pressure. But when those studies were repeated in larger sample sizes, the findings were not replicated. Um, in fact, they actually found uh, larger populations and larger numbers. The findings did not bear out. They actually found that ketamine increased cerebral perfusion pressure, which is desirable in traumatic brain injury. So it is safe to use in um, head injury patients. Is that a common misconception that you shouldn't use it in TBI that you're trying to debunk? Yes. It is ah. still something that I run into regularly uh, that people still believe. So okay. let's put that to rest right now. Um, so in conclusion, hemodynamic instability and hypoxemia must be aggressively managed before attempting RSI. So while, yes, we do ABCs, 
airway, we want it patent, but we are not going to intubate until the B and the C have been optimized. That's advanced trauma principles. The rapid part of the RSI refers to the delivery of the induction drug and the neuroblockade agent, not the hurried, rushed process. That's not what you're doing. If you're hurrying and rushing the process because your patient's airway is not patent and you've got to get a tube in quick, that's a crashing airway, and that's a whole different thing. That is not a RSI. Okay. What the RSI that we're talking about should be renamed resuscitative sequence intubation. Ah, not rapid. I love that. Ah, I like that. I stole that right from um, Kovacs and Sowers. Resuscitative sequence intubation. Mic drop. (laughs) Beautiful. Okay, so that rapid word has been throwing people off. They think it means rush, rush, fast, fast, yank that thing out and fix it. But it doesn't. Yeah, let's resuscitate, then intubate. So that is... The second part of our companion pieces about uh, airway management and resuscitation before intubation. Yeah, they go hand in hand. On our um, on our webpage for this episode, I will include the three part blog by um, Salim Razai and the podcasts from Scott Weingart that talk about resuscitate before you intubate. And then I will also include the article from Kovacs and Sowers that talk about airway management and optimizing it before intubation. Great. We will throw that up on uh, the show notes on our website, which is thekeywordpodcast.com. If you have any questions about this, as always, you can email us at thekeywordpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear and would like more um, or just want to drop us a line um, or just want to promote the show, rather, uh, please drop us a five-star rating um, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. Uh, Those things uh, help us get more attention and will help us get the word out to more nurses and healthcare professionals about how to uh, continue improving their practice. Yeah, and we want to thank the RTAC for this partnership. It's... um getting trauma information out and we are having a blast with it. We absolutely are. It's We're a perfect platform for getting this sort of stuff out and we're really glad that they've invited us to do so. So uh, thank you to them and thank you to our wonderful listeners. We hope you're having a wonderful time. Stay cool in this hot weather and uh, we also hope that you're enjoying the world reopening. Yes. Mm, so congratulations for that too. Okay, Nisa, I will talk to you next time. We've got a few new episodes uh, coming down the pike eventually, so please stay tuned. Yep. Thanks, Lisa. Four, but... Um, um, <laughs> Nisa just did something really dramatic with her computer right there, kids. <laughs> just knocked everything. So...